Hey, Unexplained Ones, this is Dr. Mounts, and thanks for tuning in to All Things Unexplained, where we talk about everything from Bigfoot to UFOs to astrophysics and everything in between. So if that sort of thing is for you, make sure to follow us wherever you podcast, along with a review and a rating. It takes a lot to get All Things Unexplained on the air, and this podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can support the show by checking us out on Linktree at A-T-U Podcast. That's A-T-U Podcast. There you'll find links to all our socials. You can support us on Venmo. You can purchase your official All Things Unexplained merchandise. And you can even book us on Cameo. And now, let's get to the show. All Things Unexplained. Hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Neves. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. Uh, I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. I want to give a special shout out real quick to our own host, CJ Derringer, a lone female warrior <laughs> in a sea of male paranormal podcasters. This is according to a recent article by The Guardian who pointed out the fact of all the male paranormal podcasters that have emerged along with COVID. <laughs> so congratulations, CJ. It's its own pandemic. <laughs> That's right. A mandemic. Right. Hello, all you unexplained ones out there. This is CJ Derringer. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mounts, and we are lucky today to have a man who is high in demand today, especially Dr. Avi Loeb. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we have had Dr. Loeb on our show before. So if you are interested in his backstory or how he got to where he is today, you can check out our previous episodes, episodes 120 to 123 feature Dr. Loeb and everything he's done before. But today is a really important day. We're working with limited time because there is a historic hearing happening at 10.30 a.m. this morning. The Senate Armed Services Subcommittee of Emerging Threats and Capabilities is going to be hearing from Arrow, which is the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. That's a whole lot to say right there. Anyways, they are talking about the potential for UFOs in the search of extraterrestrial life. And we have the guy who knows it all, <laughs> Dr. Love here, to talk to us about a paper that he has co-authored with Sean Kirkpatrick, the head of Arrow, as well as his search for extraterrestrial life. So we're going to start right there with what you're doing with the Galileo Project and what you're looking for this summer. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Um, so the Galileo project was established about a year and a half ago, and it has uh, three branches. One is to look for objects like the first interstellar object that was reported back in 2017, Oumuamua, and uh, there will be a new survey telescope starting operation in about a year. And we are planning to look for the next Oumuamua so that we can get more data on it. This time we have the web telescope that could help us 
both uh, infer the size of the object, how much the, uh, of the sunlight it reflects, and whether it has any propulsion. So that's one aspect of the Galileo project. Another one is to go after the, anything left behind or relics, fragments from interstellar meteors. These are objects that came from outside the solar system and collided with Earth and burnt up in the, uh, in the Earth's atmosphere. And there were two of them that we discovered with my student. Uh, and they, we are going after the first one from 2014. It was actually discovered almost four years before Oumuamua, roughly a meter in size and had a material strength that is tougher than all space rocks ever detected. All other 272 meteors in the catalog that NASA compiled by at least a factor of 10 tougher in material strength. And the interesting question is whether it was a spacecraft, whether it, it was made of some artificial alloy. So we're going to the Pacific Ocean in a few months and aiming to collect the fragments left over from this explosion and uh, figure out what the composition of this object was, uh, whether it was natural or artificial, manufactured by an exoterrestrial civilization. So that's very exciting this summer 2023. Yes. But uh, the third branch, which is the one we are talking about today, uh, is uh, to look at the sky and figure out whether there is any object that is not natural, unlike a bird or a bug, uh, not uh, human-made, like the balloons that the U.S. government shut down a, a few months ago, or drones or airplanes. Uh, the question is whether there is anything else, something that looks uh, as if it's uh, technological uh, because of the way it maneuvers, because of the image that shows that it has bolts and screws on it, uh, but it behaves well beyond uh, what our technologies are capable of uh, doing. And uh, so that's the fundamental question. And the reason we are doing that is because the government uh, reports about uh, objects of this type that do not classify as known uh, human-made uh, objects. And yeah. uh, so we already have an observatory that uh, is uh, collecting data 24-7 in the infrared, in the optical, in the radio, and in audio. Uh, on a property of Harvard University. And uh, uh, we're using it um, to make sure that we uh, understand how the observatory works to test it. And we are uh, analyzing the data with artificial intelligence to classify objects, uh, whether they're natural or human-made or anything else. Uh, so far, what we see is uh, still uh, natural or human-made, uh, but the, of course, it's a mixed bag in general, and the question is whether there is anything else. And uh, our plans are to make copies of this first observatory. We need the tens of them uh, spread in many locations so that we can get enough uh, statistics on these unidentified aerial phenomena that the government is talking about. Uh, and uh, in a way, what we are doing is complementary to ERO. Um, because Aero uh, is a government organization uh, in the Pentagon uh, under also the Director of National Intelligence, and their main concern is national security. The government cannot ignore these UAP because some of them may represent adversaries, so they have to consider national security threats. Uh, in my opinion, scientists cannot ignore these objects because one of them or more may represent an extraterrestrial origin. And that's the reason that the Galileo project is engaged in trying to figure yes. it out. 
we are happy to help the government in that regard. And the government, in a way, already is helping us because uh, when they shoot down balloons, they were... <laughs> They reduce the clutter in the sky, right? And, uh, and uh, uh, moreover, they discourage uh, adversaries, other nations, from putting balloons above the U.S. So um, I, it's all a blessing for us because we don't need to worry about those objects. Right. So I have a couple questions for you based on a few things that you said. The object that collided in 2014, did you say that it's a meter? It's a meter in size? Yes. So that's not very big. Yeah, well, that's... Um, <laughs> Uh, in 2014, that was the first object right. from outside the solar system that was identified by humans. I mean, this time the U.S. government and uh, together with my student, Amir Siraj, we um, uh, calculated that the, this meteor must have originated from outside the solar system. So we okay. submitted a paper for publication back in 2019, uh, making this point, uh, of course, inspired by Oumuamua. And um, the paper was not accepted for publication because my colleagues <laughs> argued that uh, they don't believe the U.S. government. But uh, then the Department of Defense um, issued a letter to NASA uh, in uh, last year in which they confirmed that indeed this meteor, the 99.999% right. was from interstellar space. And as a re they also released data about the fireball that it created uh, about 10 kilometers over the Pacific Ocean, and uh, we were able to infer that it's indeed uh, tougher than all other space rocks that uh, the government ever detected over the past decade. So 272 of them, and, and that makes it an outlier. And uh, uh, more, most recently, we were able to pinpoint the location of this uh, explosion to within a kilometer, which is extremely important when we... Okay. We'll go there to search for the fragments. So Right. So how do you search for something that's a meter in size or fragments of it at the bottom of the ocean? Oh, I should say the fragments are the size. I mean, we don't know exactly their size because it depends on the composition. But we expect it because the energy released was um, a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, so um, we expect the object to have melted into tiny droplets, uh, <laughs> and each of which is roughly a millimeter or less, so that, you know, smaller than the the head of a pin. And um, so, how do we expect to find those things? I mean, the ocean is about a mile deep, right. and uh, what we did is the the design a, a sled with magnets that will basically just scoop the ocean floor, just go over the surface and collect all the magnetized particles. Uh, the background is muck. Uh, we don't expect it to be magnetized. So so that's uh, one way. And that's if indeed the object was made of magnetic material that, you know, like metals that are attracted to magnets, but it's possible also that it was not. And in that case, we will use a sluicing device that will select the fragments based on their higher density than the background muck. So we have two options uh, to collect those fragments. It's, you know, it's a very challenging task. And of course, you know, the, I mean, we have an A team in terms of um, uh, experts that um, uh, led the, some of the most, um, um, uh, how should I say, um, the most ambitious expeditions, uh, for example, to the deepest ocean point or to the Titanic. We have some of these people on the team and 
Um, I told them, one of them suggested that he will bring uh, champagne just to celebrate. <laughs> uh, but I said, uh, we will not uh, drink that champagne until we find something. I, I'm really, <laughs> sure there is a chance that we, it, it's, it will be so difficult that we won't right. be able to, to find it. But, but we are trying, I mean, without trying, obviously we will not find it. Right. Well, very exciting. We're looking forward to hearing how that goes and hopefully you'll come back and, and share with us the details after this summer. But given our limited time, I really want to dive into this paper that you co-authored with Sean Kirkpatrick, especially given what is going to take place in a half hour today. And I'm sure you've been heavily involved in that. First, I want to revisit that fireball. That was off Papua New Guinea, wasn't it? For I am one. Yes, it's about um, 100 uh, kilometers off the coast of Manus Island, uh, based on seismometer data that we analyzed. Yes. Dr. Loeb, what motivated you to write this paper with Dr. Kurt Patrick? Oh, uh, he just um, wrote an email to me one day uh, that was about half a year ago and said, that I will be in your area. Uh, would, could we meet? Okay. I don't force myself on anyone. People just want to <laughs> <laughs> We're all forcing ourselves on you. Yeah. Uh, since my book came out uh, in uh, January 2021, about two years ago, uh, I had uh, maybe 2,500 interviews. Uh, and uh, there were, you know, I would say hundreds of people that came over to meet with me, many influential people, some um, multi-billionaires. That's how I got the, the Galileo project funded. Uh, I didn't do any fundraising. People just came to me. You know, with the expedition, for example, we needed one and a half million dollars. And I announced our intent to go there. And then within a few months, I had a Zoom call with a funder, Charles Hoskinson, that contacted me and uh, suggested to fund this expedition. So, um, you know, that was very re rewarding. And uh, these are people that I didn't know before that came forward and said that they were inspired by the vision. And uh, I have a new book coming out in August 2023 called Interstellar. Uh, and um, it, it talks about, you know, the implications for humanity if we find um, anything in the coming months uh, that is of great significance. And of course, um, the government may may have some data already uh, that is classified. I don't have access to that data. But uh, when Sean Kirkpatrick suggested to meet me at my home, I said that would be great. And he came over and uh, we had a nice discussion. And as a result of that, we wrote this, this paper. He suggested it. And by the way, the paper, the draft of the paper was ready, like I would say back in December, 2022. And um, I was, I wanted to put some data in it because otherwise I thought that there isn't, isn't enough content. And then uh, about a month ago, he contacted me again and asked, what about the paper? And I said, well, I'm not sure there is enough material in it. But then I sort of thought about it and I said, okay, well, uh, let's uh, move forward. And I put it on my website and then people went crazy. <laughs> I just, I don't fully understand it because I didn't expect anyone to pay any attention. Well, well, <laughs> there's some serious things. Interestingly, we had you on our show in December, and I don't expect you to recall that because you've had so many interviews, but you mentioned to us that the director of Arrow had come to your house and asked you to write a paper. And we mistakenly thought that the paper you were referring to was the one discussing UAPs in Ukraine. 
That's what we thought. We were like, why would he write a, a paper dispelling these UFOs? Okay, so this makes more sense that this is the paper he wanted you to ask. But in this paper, you're talking about the potential for a mothership releasing these dandelion seeds to our planet to either, you know, self-propagate here or to do scientific research and that possibly they're using water to <laughs> as their fuel and they're using solar power. There's a lot in this paper that, yeah, people are very interested in. And for those that have not read it yet, it's called The Physical Constraints on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And is it, it's only on your website currently, is that correct? Yeah, because there was so much uh, response. People went crazy that I don't know if it will ever get published. <laughs> I don't think it needs to be. There was so much attention. If there wasn't any attention, I think it would have been out by now uh, on a public you know, website. Or, but uh, because of this... Uh, response i'm not sure what will happen to it actually i don't think it needs to be published i think a lot of people have seen it already yeah oh yeah it's out there for the public knowledge i i should say the dandelion idea was already uh, briefly discussed in my book uh, extraterrestrial so um you know we were discussing in the introduction of this paper various scenarios for how probes will arrive to earth and of course you know if you have a a big uh, spacecraft, uh, it doesn't make sense for it to land on each habitable planet. You know, we have Earth, we have Mars, we have potentially Venus. So, um, and also, if it lands on one of these, it will be one geographical location. It makes much more sense to disperse uh, small probes um, in the habitable zone. And so that was the idea. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm already involved in a space corporation called Copernicus that uh, plans uh, to design the technologies necessary for a small swarm of uh, small probes. And this is an idea that was floating in my mind for a while, um, because with small probes, you have uh, the flexibility of visiting many places, of being much more intelligent in terms of what you carry and um, uh, that has not been the approach taken in the past where big spacecraft were used to, to land in one location, especially on Mars. Um, so um, so that, that came naturally. And of course, uh, if there are functional devices near, near Earth, that could be one way by which they, were, they arrived here. They didn't arrive on their own, but they were uh, dispersed by a bigger uh, object. And the other reason that I thought in this direction was that uh, Oumuamua and uh, the second interstellar meteor, which was uh, discovered by the U.S. government in March uh, 2017, about seven months before Oumuamua, they had the same speed at closest approach to the sun and also the same uh, distance of closest approach to the sun. And uh, that intrigued me because then I thought, oh, maybe they are related. Maybe uh, the second interstellar meteor, which was roughly a meter in size, uh, was released from Oumuamua, which uh, was a uh, hundred times bigger. Um, and uh, it was the size of a football field. Um, and that led me to check uh, the orbits of the two. And it looked as if the inclination, the direction uh, from where IM2 arrived, the second interstellar meteor arrived, was different from that of Oumuamua. So, Apparently, they were not uh, coming from the same origin. And uh, of course, if you have uh, an, a, a baby probe uh, released from a mothership at a large distance, even if the ejection speed is small, the arrival times could be very different. 
and uh, the small probe can arrive to Earth while the mothership uh, passes by at a large distance from Earth because small ejection speed, uh, differences uh, in speed uh, could result in big differences when the two objects approach the Earth. And uh, so, so we mentioned that as well in the introduction, but it's not as if uh, there is any specific example that I can give. And as I said, you know, this, this paper, as far as I'm concerned, since it didn't have a reference to specific data, uh, I wasn't, you know, thrilled about its significance. Uh, but other people found it interesting, so I guess <laughs> yeah. it served some purpose. I, and, and I should say, I'm speaking here uh, on behalf of myself. Now, what uh, Sean knows, uh, you know, I, I have no idea because I have no access to classified information. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Loeb, do you consider yourself to be a part of Arrow? And were you asked to join Dr. Kirkpatrick this morning in front of the Senate? Uh, no, I was not. Uh, and I'm not uh, a member of Arrow. I mean, I'm not a government employee. I, we are not getting any funds at the moment from in the Galileo project from Arrow. So what would be Sean Kirkpatrick's motivation to do this paper? I understand yours. What's his? Yeah, I think it's the fact that we are pursuing the scientific method. A lot of people in the in the public do not understand the difference between the various organizations that express interest in unidentified aerial phenomena. Let me give you an example. Uh, there was a political uh, report about uh, my paper with Sean Kirkpatrick uh, that came out a few days ago. And in it, uh, there was a, a person that uh, represents... Uh, one organization that looks into archival data that was uh, reported by citizens, uh, things that are open in the public. And, and they have a beautiful website. Uh, I don't know how much funds they have, but it looks as if they have a lot of funding. And, um, and, uh, and their representative that is responsible for collecting data was commenting in the political article. Now, I was curious because I never met that person. I checked him out and it turns out that his credentials in the, is in real estate. That's that's his profession, real estate. So, so clearly he has no experience in science. And why would he be qualified to talk <laughs> about objects in the atmosphere from a scientific perspective? He just made negative comments. So that's an right. example okay, of the culture that exists out there of organizations that exist out there that say that they are really interested. Now, what are they doing? They're unable to build an observatory that will collect scientific data. So what they're doing is collecting data from private citizens that use their cell phones, that give them blurry images that say there is an object out there, but how can you tell if it's a drone or it's a balloon or it's just a hack? Someone can hack an image. Uh, but they are collecting it and they're saying we are really interested. And he can say negative things about the Galileo project because he feels like he's also working on this subject. And then there are people that work on the subject by addressing religious aspects of UAP. Like, how is that related to what the Galileo project is doing? It has nothing to do with it. Uh, religions can say whatever they want, but it has nothing to do with the scientific method, which is collecting data by scientific instruments that are under control, that are well calibrated, and that are documented and are repeatable. That's the scientific method. It's not going back to religious texts and saying, oh, there is a mention there of some object that could be a UAP. I'm therefore a scholar of religion and UAP, and therefore I'm equivalent to the Galileo Pro. Now, this is completely different. And then there are other organizations that 
some members of them had experiences. I saw something in my childhood, therefore I'm a believer. And then a group of those people come together and say, we are exploring UAP. Now, what are they exploring? They're exploring their experiences. And and also I had a podcast interview just a few days ago of someone saying, well, I'm working in the political arena and there we rely on people, only on people. So why wouldn't you consider eyewitness testimonies as evidence for science. And I say, well, look at any car accident when people are involved. You hear conflicting reports from people that were involved in the same event. So who would you believe? Look at FIFA that had the soccer World Cup in Qatar. They used uh, cameras, uh, video cameras, to infer whether there was a penalty or not. They didn't go to the players to ask them, what do you think? They didn't go to the benches or to the audience to say what are to poll the audience everyone saw it everyone took photographs like what do you think i mean that's not the scientific approach you can't rely on people you have to rely on instruments so the galileo project is the first time in history and within a few months you know we'll collect more data than was ever collected in all the uap reports throughout history in terms of the volume of data it's just because we monitor the sky 24 7 with a dedicated observatory. It's not like we go for five days to Catalina Island and claim that we saw a hole in the clouds, okay? Like some groups. I think I've seen that show. (laughs) We're familiar with this, yes. (laughs) The point is going for five days and seeing a hole in the clouds is not a convincing scientific evidence. Yes. So it sounds like you have as many people supporting you as you do getting in your way. (laughs) But for today's sake, Arrow going to this committee meeting, are they trying to secure more funding to keep doing what they're doing? Are they presenting information that they've found? What can be expected from today's hearing? Yeah, so I think the distinguishing feature of Arrow, and I really applaud that, is they want to address this, the nature of UAP using the scientific method. And that is the reason that uh, Sean came to my home that that we had conversations. That's the reason that we wrote the paper to, together. Uh, and let me just mention one more, one additional important point that uh, a lot of people interested in UAP claim that they have evidence for new physics. And the evidence they have is just because of crappy data, data that is incomplete, data in which you don't know the distance to an object and therefore you claim that it violates the laws of physics because it's possible, given the uncertainty, it's possible that there is new physics. Now, that's not the way science is done. Let me clarify that again. Science is not done by crappy data that allows new physics to exist. That is not the way new physics is uncovered. New physics is uncovered when you have exquisite data that it takes years and a lot of effort to collect with state-of-the-art instruments so that there is no way out. There is no other possible explanation that, you know, you can't use standard physics to explain what you found. So for that, you need to work really hard. You have to get really good data. Only with exceptional data, you can argue for new physics, not with crappy data, okay? And that sounds trivial, but when I criticize the... Ukrainian astronomers that did not have reliable distance estimates and other people claimed new physics based on the fact that 20 years ago there was the Tic Tac incident. That's not evidence that the Ukrainians are seeing the correct distance. The fact that 20 years ago someone 
The point is they need to measure a distance by triangulation. And only then let's start the conversation about new physics, but not before that. Okay. So that's another thing that public, you know, that people are, that are not a, a professional scientists do not fully understand that to argue new physics, you really need no way out of explaining what you see from known physics. Okay. So you need exceptional data and to collect exceptional data, you need to build the instruments, the, the observatory, and that takes a lot of effort. It's much easier to sit on the couch and express an opinion or to write something on Twitter and express an opinion. Oh, I think this and that. And I think, and then say, I call my organization a UAP, an organization of UAP enthusiasts. You can do that without any effort, but there is a huge difference between doing that and actually investing a lot of your time in assembling state-of-the-art instruments that will give us conclusive data about the nature of UAP. It's very different. And people can, you know, dismiss or say the Galileo project is just one out of 10 other. No, there is no other organization dedicated to this endeavor of putting effort of tens of dozens of people building observatories to monitor the sky and collect state-of-the-art data. So is Arrow trying to get funding to do that, to, to build state-of-the-art equipment to use? Well, I hope so, because uh, we, we have a common objective, which is to apply the scientific method to UAP. Yes. Okay. So that objective, as far as I'm concerned, is part of doing science. From their perspective, from the government perspective, it's really important to figure out what these unidentified objects are because they may pose a national security threat. That's why Congress uh, uh, or today's hearing uh, are held because otherwise, why would the government care about the scientific matter? Okay, so the reason they care about UAPs because some of them may represent um, uh, human-made objects, and of course, if if it turns out that some are not. I would be extremely interested in those. And I don't think at that point, if there is any extraterrestrial object, it's not the preview of uh, uh, President Biden. You know, it's it, it just like uh, if we find what the nature of dark matter is, uh, it, it, you know, it will be known to all humans. It has nothing to do with national borders, national security. So it, uh, President Biden should not be the first to know about it. Yeah, that's true. So when we were reading your paper, that you and Sean Kirkpatrick co-authored together, Tim had a really interesting thought on the water aspect. Well, Dr. Lowe, we were just wondering because we have a friend of the show, adventurer Dane Beck, and he was a deep sea fisherman. And he had one of these stereotypical grizzled old captains, you know, who'd been around forever. And he always told the, the other man on the ship about seeing UFOs over the water and he would watch them sucking fish up out of the water. And everybody thought that was really puzzling, right? But then I read your paper and I'm like, wait a minute, what if they weren't sucking fish up out of the water, but they, they were just sucking, the fish were trapped in the water that they were sucking up to use as fuel. And we're talking about deep sea vessels, hundreds of miles away from any land or any other military activity. But also Dr. Loeb, concerning the water in your paper, a lot of these recent military encounters seem to involve UAPs over water. Mm -hmm. Was there any connection there 
between these military encounters over water and the water in your paper? Yeah, so I heard uh, those reports from people who witnessed uh, unusual phenomena above the water, objects coming in and out of water. And if you notice the um, congressional, uh, uh, the original uh, co uh, congressional, um, uh, you know, definition of um, arrow was to investigate uh, multi-medium objects. And uh, there is a reason for that, because some of the reports talked about the objects getting into the water, uh, and um, the question is, what what is going on? You know, and uh, we don't know. I mean, I don't have access to the to any data that was collected by instruments, and uh, so we plan uh, to place Galileo observatories uh, near the ocean and and look for that 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 kind of phenomena. And uh, you know, I'm intrigued by these these reports and. Um, uh, of course, water can serve as, as fuel, uh, depending on uh, what engine the uh, technology is using. So, uh, the, and that could be also a reason for visiting the habitable uh, region around the star, because far away from the star, the water is frozen into ice and it's not as easy to use it. Um, so you can imagine uh, visits to the, uh, to the proximity of stars where liquid water exists and where life exists, just if these probes are trying to explore those regions. And, you know, if we ever find a technological device that came from an extraterrestrial origin, the fundamental, I mean, of course, the first realization would be, hey, we didn't expect that, what's going on? And it will give also an answer to Fermi's paradox, where is everybody? Well, they're just here in your backyard, you haven't noticed. Uh, but um, the second question, of course, is what does it mean? Okay, what are these probes seeking? And that could take us much more time to figure out because, um, you know, it's like breaking a code. Um, you have to uh, see what, what kind of resources these probes are using, what kind of information they are seeking, where are they going? So that it's sort of like an intelligence operation where you're trying to figure out something that you have no clue about. And, you know, we can employ AI systems in the process of figuring it out. There is no protocol as to such encounters. And I think it makes no sense to have a protocol ahead of time because our imagination may be limited to what we experienced in the past. And, you know, what we find may be completely different. Uh, in fact, yesterday I, I sent a happy birthday wishes um, uh, to um, the director and producer of Star Trek. He will turn uh, 100 years old on May 1st, Serensky, and from 1966. And he replied and thanked me. Uh, and, you know, when I took part in the Ignatius Forum in uh, the Washington National Cathedral in November 2021, together with Jeff Bezos, uh, Bezos said that uh, uh, when he was a kid, you know, he watched Star Trek and, and that inspired him to venture into space, to establish Blue Origins. And, uh, you know, it's, it would be really interesting to compare uh, what reality shows versus the scripts that were invented uh, in the context of Star Trek or other science fiction movies. You see, my profession, my business, my uh, interest is in science. And I want to separate the science from the fiction. 
Uh, and uh, it may well be that the science will reveal uh, results that are far more imaginative than the script of Star Trek. Uh, just because humans, you know, are, you know, responding to their experiences from the past and we've never had such an encounter. Like imagine seeing iPhone 100. Right. You know, what kind of buttons will iPhone 100 have? Yes, no, very true. And it just seems like so many people are now starting to be really open to this topic and this idea. I know that they're just, like we said at the start of the show, there's podcasts about UFOs and UAPs all over the place. And um, I've been dying to ask you, just two weeks ago, we had people from the show, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch on the History Channel. Do you know anything about that show or about that ranch? Oh, yeah, because... Um... I, I attended the Q&A with uh, Fugel, the owner of the ranch. You did. Okay. So we know that now that Dr. Travis Taylor, who works on the ranch and on the show, was part of the uh, part of Arrow. He was the head scientist for a bit there. What do you make of what's happening on that particular ranch? Yeah. So I'm worried about this uh, <laughs> ranch uh, for a simple reason, that its location is well known and that people talk about it as a site for UAP and Therefore, it's an invitation to all hackers. I mean, you know that um, a lot of hackers on the internet very often try to fool people. Mm. And uh, in the same way, people can go there and transmit radio signals, change all kinds of things, uh, just as a, you know, just to confuse whoever is there. So that's the main worry that I have about the site that is... Uh, that is well known and its location is public and um, and was advertised on the History Channel. And for that reason, we will try to avoid the advertising the locations of our observatories in the Galileo Project because I don't want hackers to confuse us. Interesting. Okay, that wasn't something that I had given any thought to, but I suppose that, yeah, that people, I'm even thinking now they have a live stream of their skies and certainly somebody could hack into that and okay right a very good thought all right well i do want to be respectful of your time today and of this hearing that's happening in just 10 minutes which we're all excited is it public can we check it out live yes it is public uh, okay. it's open there was a, a an earlier phase which was closed and that took place um, starting an hour ago Ah, there's always that closed session. So some of that, I think, sir, we'll save for closed That we can't get into. Okay, so based on you know everything that we've talked about today, um, and it sounds like you have some people getting in your way, maybe some naysayers of the things that you do, and then lots of people that truly believe in what you're doing, what would be your takeaway for our listeners who might be skeptical about the search for extraterrestrial evidence? Well, first of all, we launched five probes towards uh, interstellar space. They, they were Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. So uh, we know that uh, the, there is at least one example of a technological civilization that ventured to interstellar space. It's us. <laughs> and we did it over the past uh, half a century. So just imagine uh continuing to do that there will be many more probes launched in the future especially as our technologies evolve and we might send out uh, ai astronauts uh, rather than humans and um, i talk about it in my forthcoming book uh, interstellar and the point is um, if we decided at some point uh, uh, to take uh, the two trillion dollars a year that we currently invest in military budgets and allocate it to space exploration 
we could send a probe to every star in the Milky Way galaxy by the end of this century. Tens of billions of them, CubeSats. And it's just a matter of changing priorities instead of killing each other to <laughs> exploring space. I mean, just listen to John Lennon's song, uh, Imagine All the yeah. People Living in Peace. That's not so complicated, right? Uh, it turns out to be complicated for us because of our heritage of uh, zero-sum games being engaged in uh, trying to conquer pieces of land and so forth on this rock that we call Earth. But um, if we do find evidence for another civilization that was much more intelligent than we are so far, uh, perhaps it will inspire us uh, to have different aspirations in space. And, and another benefit is that we will start treating each other as equal members of the human species. You know, a lot of the atrocities in human history were a result of a group of people feeling superior relative to other people. And that would make no sense if there is another civilization far more advanced than that. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, finally, um, you know, Alan Turing about a century ago talked about the imitation game. That's the Turing test for yes. AI yes. systems like GPT-4 imitating humans and uh, for us to be able to tell whether we are interacting with uh, a human or a machine. You know, that that is the Turing test. And uh, I see the imitation game uh, going another level, which is our AI systems will aspire to imitate extraterrestrial AI systems in the future. Once we find them, those ex uh, extraterrestrial AI probes, uh, and uh, that could uh, elevate us um, in the sense that we will see what our future is like, because those civilizations who sent these probes uh, evolved far more than we did technologically, and we can learn from them. You mentioned something, and I'm going to butcher this, but in your paper with um, Sean Kirkpatrick about the potential for AI and 3D printing self-replicating, which is mind-boggling to me. Right. Yeah, but if you think about it, this is just like imitating nature. I mean, nature does it already. Right. In, in, you know, and uh, self-replicating machines uh, use DNA in, in uh, biology. And interestingly, um, this concept uh, was thought about by von Neumann, a uh, uh, physicist, uh, a year before uh, the structure of the DNA was uh, realized. So he was thinking about self-replicating machines um, uh, and then biology, I mean, we realized that biology does it through the DNA. And of course, in the future, we can make, um, we can realize von Neumann's uh, uh, idea uh, and others may have realized it already uh, using technology. And I should say that GPT-4 is getting uh, close to being as complex as the human brain because it has a hundred trillion connections when the human brain has uh, 600 trillion synapses uh, so it's getting close and GPT-5 may exceed the complexity of the human brain so we are already getting to a point where the machine will be as complex or more as the human brain so we won't be able to figure it out it may exhibit uh, something that we will call free will uh, we may hold the machine responsible for what it's doing if it goes well beyond the qualities that it was trained on. Uh, and so we are getting, you know, we created an alien uh, in our technological belly. It's called the artificial intelligence. And 
that's an, an, an alien that uh, we ourselves created, but let's look out for those that came to us from interstellar space. They may be quite more advanced. Yes, absolutely they might be. Let's hope we didn't create our own HAL, H-A-L, because <laughs> I noticed something interesting about the AI's is capacity for hallucinations, also known as lies, which I thought was really interesting. Well, they imitate humans, so we all know that uh, that's a, a weakness of humans. <laughs> all right, so check out Avi Loeb on Medium. We are so thankful for everybody that tuned in. Uh, send us your questions. Send us your adventures. We hope that everybody will stay happy, stay strange, and listen to all things unexplained. Thank you, Dr. Loeb. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to All Things Unexplained. If you liked this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show depends on the support of listeners like you. Find us on Venmo under the business accounts at Bigfoot UFO. If you can't get enough of us, please check us out at allthings-unexplained.com. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man who wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he wears a lot of hats. Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained.